episode 13 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, uh, Adam McKinnon, as always, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, my partner in crime, Jim Passan. Sweet. We survived another year. New year for all of us here. So happy new year to you. We made it. And uh, joining us is a very special guest today. We have uh, D.B. Firstman in the house uh, here to talk about uh, their new book, Hall of Name, Baseball's Most Magnificent Monikers from the Only Nolan to Van Lingle Mungo and more. D.B., thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Happy New Year, fellows. Absolutely. Happy New Happy Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade to, to everyone. Um, it depends where you think a decade starts. Yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> that That's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> and a whole different podcast. That's a whole... <laughs> so, um, so, DB, I wanted to kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, for somebody who's about to put a book out, I want to start at chapter one. What, um, you know, what's your baseball origin story? Okay, uh, we have to go back in my family history. My, my parents were divorced when I was two. My mother had custody of me. My father would come over on weekends, flop himself on the couch, turn on the Yankee game. And I realized from an early age that if I wanted to interact with my father, it was going to have to be through baseball. So, you know, <laughs> it was the Yankees, it was Messer, White, and Rizzuto on the TV on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And I learned the game through through that medium, through TV and through my father. And it was really the only bond that my father and I had. He had um, mental health issues and it was the only way he and I could really relate. We, it was our only common bond. So um, he would take me to Yankee games, uh, even though we lived in uh, Jackson Heights, which is 10 minutes away from Shea Stadium, we would go to Yankee Stadium and make the hour and a half trip on the subway. Oof. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've ridden that subway. So, it's, not, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And, the, the, and we're, talking, we're talking the early to mid-1970s when the Yankees were pretty bad. <laughs> there was a time. Uh, we, there was a time. We always, we always seem to get a, a seat behind a pillar. You know, the, <laughs> the old Yankee Stadium had those you know, had those pillars uh, on the lower, you know, through the lower levels, and we always managed to get a seat behind them. Yeah, my Anyhow. father called those the Bob Euchre seats, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my origin story for baseball is basically my father, and I I just stuck with baseball because it, it, there's such there's such a romance about it. There's so much history to it, and you can love it for so many different reasons, from the numbers to the personalities to I don't know to the names. 
Yeah. Right. To so. the to the names and thus brings us so um where where does the writing experience come from in the game? You know, um, you know, because I've only just uh, just met you, uh, you know, recently. So, uh, can you fill fill our listeners in? Where where does your writing experience come from? Um, I had one of the first uh, back in back in the prehistory of MLB.com or the early history of MLB.com. They offered fan driven blogs you could post your own blog on mlb.com and you had to pay for that experience you had to pay mlb.com fifty dollars a year so that you could post a blog on their website wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i was one of the first fan-oriented blogs and it was really sort of a whimsical take on everything from uh, funny photographs and captioning them to did you see what happened in this particular game to statistical oddities to uh, you know playing playing around with names even back then and I moved on to write for a couple of different um, baseball blogs for Bronx Banter and for something called Baseball Toaster I've done some work for Baseball Prospectus I've had work uh, on ESPN.com for a while um wow hardball times uh the village voice so i've had i've had various opportunities over the past 15 or so years um and my latest venture which started in 2011 was value over value over replacement grit which was sort of my uh ode to just all the quirky things that could happen in baseball whether it's you know statistical oddities or uh, making up names making up songs based on baseball player names using only baseball player names uh so the 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 blog took me through 2018 and that's when i started working on the book wow okay so um and thus and thus brings us to the book so um can can you kind of can you kind of fill us in on, you know, kind of give us a little bit of a sneak peek here as to what what are we looking at? I mean, the 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 title's pretty self-explanatory, but what uh, what you're filling a very interesting gap here. You know, you're fill, you, this. I, I don't know of anyone else who's right working on a project like this. Um, there, there was a self-published book on a similar topic back in 2015, um, but I, I've taken a more hopefully scholarly approach to it i'm trying to thread the needle between humor book and scholarly reference book i'm looking at the a hundred of the greatest names in baseball history not necessarily the best players but but the players themselves with the best names uh and we're not talking nicknames we're talking real given birth names um and we're profiling them in terms of the etymology of their name how they got their name whether it was their parents or um it was you know um for example zealous zealous wheeler was a reserve outfielder for the yankees back in the early 1990s his name was totally made up by his parents they had no <laughs> they had no uh, no basis for naming him zealous wow but they named him zealous <laughs> and of course Zealous later became a father and named his child Zethan. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
for no other reason than zealous begat Zethan. So, I, you know, <laughs> so, so those kind of stories, the, the etymology of their names and then their pro, their profiles of, of their careers, both before and after baseball, what they did, you know, the growing up, you know, as a child, whether they went to college, how they got drafted, how they got into the big leagues, what they did after their careers were over. Um, and so we have we have information like that on 100 different players, basically from anywhere from 1870 through like 2015. Now, wow. DB, where did you uh, where did you start with the names? Did you use like a baseball reference or MLB.com to lay out the, the groundwork and then go research from there? Well, um, this this venture basically had its its um, infancy in uh, part of my blog, Value Over Replacement Grid. I did some work on uh, exploring particular player names back then, and I never really thought about putting it into a book. Well, I did think about putting it into a book in, in 2012, and I brought the brought the concept to a couple of small niche publishers. And they said to me, we love the concept personally, but we don't think it's going to sell. And I'm like, okay, fine. And this is 2012 and self-publishing really hadn't taken off yet. And I was looking for a project to, do, to work on. You know, I had done seven years on my blog and I was looking for something new. And I really just thought, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to write about, I'm going to write about names. I'm going to write about the names I love. I have... Um, Sean Lahman has the Lahman Baseball Database, which has 19,000 names of baseball players and, and executives and umpires. I just went through that entire list wow. and started looking at names for, you know, rhyming or funny sounding or scatological or, you know, what, what were their parents thinking kind of names. <laughs> And made you... a list, whittled them down, and then I started to research them. And what I ran into was that some of the players really had no careers to speak of. They had a cup of coffee or even less than a cup of coffee, and there was really nothing written about them. Right. So there wasn't much to profile about the player. So I had to, had to sort of pare down the list to those who had something of a history that, you know, is researchable. I use the Sabre Baseball Bio Project, um, which is a collection of over 5,000 different player biographies. So that was a, a you know, tremendous resource for my for my biographical research. And I used Ancestry.com. I used Newspapers.com. Um, wow. You know, so yeah, it, it was it was a lot of a lot of online research and a lot of pulling from different sources. And there are a, a ton of niche profile, baseball profile books out there um, by, you know, like McFarland and University of Nebraska Press. So those were my sources. Okay. And would you woodshed these with, with uh, another person? Or was this something where you're like going down these meticulous lists and just saying like, aha, there's, there's, a, there's a winner? Um, I, when, when I was writing the book, when I, when I felt, when I whittled it down to a hundred names and I started putting the names out, I sort of teased the names like, Hey, this book is coming out next year. And here's, here's one of the names I'll be profiling. Somebody would, uh, would 
always write me back and say, well, what about so-and-so? Have you included, you know, John Smith? And I'm like, <laughs> well, John, John wasn't really his name. It was really Ted. And right. you know, so there were, there were people who were volunteering names and some of them were, 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 were nicknames. And I didn't want to write a book about nicknames. I didn't want to write about Catfish Hunter and Blue Moon Odom. I wanted to write about people whose names were, were basically from birth. And, you know, because that that's that had a, a real sort of honesty to it that had, you know, there wasn't because they were short. It wasn't because they were overweight. It was just what their parents were thinking at the <laughs> moment of what's what are we going to name our kid? So. So do you feel like um, as we as we turn over into a new decade and baseball becomes further into further, uh, you know, I guess you could say like the multicultural. You know, we're mm -hmm. starting to see more and more players come from all over the world. Um, do you do you see this as something like could this is there such a thing as a golden era or a golden age of baseball names? Is is this something that you find? In, is this a trend you find intriguing? Is there any or is there, do you think there's not much to that? Um, I think the golden age of names would probably be in the early 1900s because <laughs> players went by, they, they, they had their given names, but there were so many nicknames, Icebox Chamberlain, High Pockets Kelly, <laughs> uh, Noodle, Noodle, I think there was like a Noodles Graham. I mean, they, these <laughs> players had names. And they, that was the, the name that everybody knew them by, but it was but it was more of a nickname. I'm focused on real player names, and I think as we pull players from different um, different countries now, we've got we've got we've got Max Kepler from Germany. We've got the um, Pittsburgh Pirates had a couple of players from um, trying to remember what country they came from. Um, Dobby Daskas, uh, the, the pitcher and the middle in gift Migope from, I think, South yeah. Africa or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. Hope, Hope, and Hope, I think his name was, right? Or no, it was, it was Gift. It yeah. was Gift. It was Gift. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was Gift. Okay. The gift that keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's for all of, of Major League Baseball's problems with inner city recruitment and things like that, it has become a much more worldwide phenomenon in terms of where they're trying to pull people, where they're trying to find players and pull players into. And that, of course, you know, you get, you get the names, you get etymologies and origin stories that are much more diverse, you know, right. than just what happens in the United States. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the actual working of the book, if I could. Um, sure. Being able to write a book, uh, there's so many challenges to it. There's there's even getting the idea started. Uh, you mentioned earlier about talking about uh, talk to a publisher and then getting kind of shot down, right? Um, right. So now you've got to decide between self-publishing, publishing, which you know, wasn't really an option back then like it is now. Um of the of all the hurdles that you had to go through, I mean, which ones really gave you the most trouble? Uh, was it just getting started? Was it the finish? Uh, uh, anything in between? I think one of the one of the hurdles was reaching a point with a particular player and and running into a, a stop sign in terms of how much information was out there on the player. 
when you've exhausted your sources and um, you don't know what else to write about them, but the profile itself is a little bit short. And it's like, well, I really want to include this player because his name is really great, but <laughs> I don't have I don't have much to say about the player other than, hey, look at his name or hey, look at the etymology. I didn't want to turn this book into sort of a Nelson Munz Simpsons, ha ha, look at that funny name kind of feeling. <laughs> I didn't want to turn it into that kind of book because that's that's really simplistic and you know, I'm a bit more scholarly than that. I wanted to put some some meat on the bones of this book in terms of what 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 is the etymology of their name, and so I really wanted to have a profile of of the player's name and their careers, and so when I came up to a name where they didn't really have much to say about themselves, or you know, there was nothing available. Then I had a hurdle. Then I had to uh, make a choice as to do I put this player aside or do I, you know, try and dig a little further. And eventually, I had to I had to give up a few choice names because there was just there's just nothing out there except the name itself. Did you have a um, lot of contact with the players themselves at any point? Like, was there was there when you hit a stop sign? Was there any point where you could say just go directly to the source? Well, I talked to Kai Kai, Kyle, Kai, Kai Kyler's great grandson. <laughs> so, because Kai Kai, one of the origin stories for his name was that he stuttered, and so Kai Kai was supposed to be a stuttering um, um, offshoot. Wow! And I, I, uh, I was put in touch with his great grandson through a mutual friend, and so I asked, I asked the grandson about this, and he totally shot it down. He said that was not true. That's a fable. Uh, his 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 great grandfather never had that issue. Um, so that was that was kind of cool that I got to speak to him. Um, yeah, the 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 origin story of Larvel Blanks who was a, um, I believe, an outfielder for the Braves in the early late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I tried to find out the origin story of the name Larvell. And so I, I, I have this, I had a book. It, it lists all, this, all the home addresses of all the Major League Baseball players. I wrote to Larvell. I said, I'm writing this book. I want to know if you if you can tell me the origin story of your first name because I can't find it anywhere. I can't find it in newspapers.com. I can't find it in any articles. I can't find it online anywhere. And I wrote to him back in March. Seven and a half months later, he returned the self-addressed stamped envelope with no answer for me on his name, but a signed baseball card. <laughs> <laughs> that that it could not be like more helpful and less helpful at the same time. <laughs> right, right. Well, so, um, so uh, yeah. D, uh, DB, I have I have one uh, question to kind of uh, put a put a bow on it. Um, do you have a do you, do you have a favorite? Can you pick a favorite? Just 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 one favorite. Oh God. Um... Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> one, one of the one of the first people I wrote about, um, and I wrote about him in my blog, and then I resurrected him for the book. His given name was Bristol B R I S T O L 
Robotham, R-O-B-O-T-H-A-M, Lord. Oh. Bristol Robotham Lord, and he was he played in the 1910s. He um, his nickname was the Human Eyeball. What? No, for no other reason than supposedly he had very keen eyesight. That, uh, but he was the Human Eyeball, which he went, in and of itself he went, <laughs> is a great story he went from like a character in the once and future king to like a character on like fast times at ridgemont high like from actual name to, to nickname that's amazing <laughs> that's nuts what yeah is... well so, that Briss, Briss lord is one of my favorites and uh of re- more recent vintage billy joe robodell billy joe robodell that just rolls off the tongue there yeah, and he was born in Massachusetts, which, of course, is famous for their French-sounding people. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, DB, uh, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm, we're, we're very grateful to have you on the show. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to reading, reading your book and uh, getting to know, you know, baseball has so many quirks, and this is probably one of my favorites. So, uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I can't wait to get it from a different angle, right? After you're ingesting so much stats-wise and in typical format, it'll be nice to get it from a different angle to get that history. So, Absolutely. Um, and I think that uh, also he should be able to get a shout-out for all the people that helped you with this book, too. Um, you have a beautiful cover on this book, uh, mm-hmm. back cover, quote, forward. Uh, you got an all-star cast that helped you out at the yeah. end of this. Uh, got a got an illustration from a uh, London-based uh, illustrator named Tim Godden, who, who is a huge baseball fan out in the UK. Uh, he did a terrific job with the cover. Uh, I've got the forward written by good fr- uh, good friend Jason Stark. Oh, you wow. may know him. You may know him from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, and yeah. may uh, have he, heard of him. He, he reaches out. He reaches out to me quite often on baseball name trivia and history. So I called. I called in a little favor and I asked him to write the forward, and he he obliged, and he did a great job with it. And then on the back cover, we have a little blurb from the official Major League Baseball historian John Thorne. Wow. Oh man, yeah. that is that is an all-star cast. Yeah, and then yeah. I think what layout and design uh, was uh, Chris Patrick Morgan, I believe also. Chris Patrick Morgan who is a friend of mine from the Scrabble community and he also does a lot of uh, a lot of book uh, editing and layout work and he does a terrific job. That's awesome. Excellent. Well, uh, so uh, DB Firstman, uh, uh, the name of their book is Hall of Name, Baseball's Most Magnificent Monikers, from the only Nolan to Van Lingo Mungo and Van Lingo Mungo and more. Um, it will, are we, uh, we were saying early spring release. Am I, am I right? We're, we're gunning. We're gunning for mid-March. Mid-March. Okay. Just in time for the regular season. Uh, right. You can find uh, DB at Dianagram on Twitter. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And um, thank you. Again, I can't thank you enough. What a treat. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, DB. Awesome. All right. And uh, have a great new year and look forward to uh, another encounter down the line.
And we're back. Uh, Jim, it is uh, everyone's favorite time of year here. It's Hall of Fame time. This uh, It's Hall of Fame season. It's the season within the offseason, after the postseason, before the regular season. I'm still kind of stuck on uh, DB's book. I'm still interested about weird names and stuff like that. That's, Man, those names from the early 1900s are crazy. They are. They're they're fun. Like I, I just you know tell me more about like uh, you know uh, you know I always thought as a kid like Tiger Woods like like when did we just universally decide he was Tiger Woods, you yeah. know? And then you go back to like man, what about Smokey Joe Wood and and you know uh, like Three Finger Brown and old yeah, ho- right? old Hoss Rayborn, you know? Man, what's, like what's the goofiest name on the Hall of Fame ballot? Like. JJ Putts or something. I mean, really. <laughs> well, yeah. he isn't part of the conversation tonight. Anyway, I don't believe you voted for him, did you? Uh, no, that's a, that's a hard pass. And you know why you already knew that, Jim? Why is that? Is because uh, for the first time, uh, what romantic about baseball, Jim and I have both split our IBWAA uh, Hall of Fame ballot this year. Uh, we blindly went in and said, "Okay, we've got 12, 12 votes." As opposed to the BBWA's uh, 10. And uh, the ballot's a little bit different. The IBWAA does not have Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds on their ballot as they were already voted in. Uh, so think of it as more of like a parallel organization, uh, you know, without all the uncharming, you know, silliness that goes into it. Uh, so we split our ballot this year. And uh, we uh, surprisingly came up with the same. 12 names to vote for that made life easy it did it did this whole this whole show was is a lot less contentious when jim and i agree so um what do we basically i want to start by just firing off the names and then what we're jim and i are going to do is we're just going to roll down to some of the uh more interesting names on the ballot uh and then talk about a few of them as we go so you ready jim yeah, I'm ready. All right. So from top to bottom, uh, here we go. Uh, our votes went as follows. Uh, Larry Walker, Derek Jeter, Scott Rowland, Kurt Schilling, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, Gary Sheffield, Bobby Abreu, Todd Helton, Jeff Kent, Andy Pettit, and Sammy Sosa. Um, Jim, I think you'll agree that in uh, the folks who listen to this podcast, we are not blowing anyone's doors off by agreeing to vote for uh, Derek Jeter, nor Larry Walker. No. No. Uh, yeah, I think we're all in agreement there. I think that there is some interesting cases to be made uh, for some of the other players on this ballot, though. And I wanted to start with, uh, with a guy that I know you feel very strongly and very passionately about, and that is uh, Mr. Billy Wagner. So yeah. tell me... Tell uh, tell me about like why tell me the Jim Passon case for Billy Wagner's Hall of Fame candidacy. I mean, for Billy Wagner, it's uh, I mean, the, the difficult part for everybody is always is the position that he plays, right? I mean, we've talked about DH, but some and people compare him to being a DH and being a specialty, and and then but other people are like, well, we have specialties like pinch runners and pinch hitters. And it's like, eh, nobody ever gets that type of volume, right, as a pinch runner or pinch hitter. So maybe a, a DH comparison makes a little more sense, but still, even as a relief pitcher, I mean, you're 
3,600 times he faced the batter. It's a, that's their knock on a guy. I mean, that's a pretty decent sample size, I believe, to, to get what you get out of somebody, right? And I believe that relief pitcher, especially the way that we are set up today, that uh, it's an important piece, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we know where we're at for baseball today. It's, it's worked its way from past years to get to where we are, where starters aren't going the distance. Relief pitching is becoming more and more valuable. People are actually not just failed starters turning into relief pitchers. They're actually relief pitchers out there. So um, it just, to me, Billy Wagner represented an era where, uh, we were just learning about one-inning pitchers that were out there for their saves and right. trying to figure out their value, right? And uh, and when we look at it, right, uh, in the old ways, it's just like, okay, well, he racked up um, 422 saves. All right, well, it just puts him sixth on the list of a specialty position. So that's not Mariano Rivera, and that's not Trevor Hoffman. And uh, But if we look at other uh, relievers in the past too that have made the the Hall of Fame. Well, he doesn't have the innings count. He doesn't have the the batter's face as everybody else. But I mean, the one thing that Billy just dominates all relief pitchers in that have retired from the game is is his rate stats. He's ridiculous, right? His K rate um, struck up pretty much a third of those batters, right? Thirty six hundred batters faced, eleven hundred ninety six strikeouts. Um, that's that's, that's so, just so dominating, you know. It's especially, I mean, when when you really only go out and, you, and when you when you when you compare it to people that have reached nine hundred or a thousand strikeouts in their career, I mean, he's the only one on the top of that list, and it's not even close, right? I mean, you got Chris Sales, like the next guy on that list, just starting right. pitcher that's been doing it as of late, right? In the era um, of the strikeout, too, you know, when when the strikeout is so much more commonplace than it has been historically. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, and when you drop it even lower, then all of a sudden you get Kimbrell, Jansen, uh, you get uh, Chapman in there, right. and, and all your searches when you're looking for K rate, K to walk rate, and just, uh, you know, multi strikeout games and things like that for a relief pitcher. You start seeing those names come up. And well, those are the guys that, I mean, Wagner pitched his last game in 2010, right? I mean, we're talking about pitchers that are going into 2020, and some of them, maybe Kimbrell's falling a little bit off and Jansen a little bit off and Chapman a little bit off, but they're coming at the end of their peaks and they have those types of numbers. I mean, really what we saw out of Billy Wagner in the past was basically a right-handed guy turned into a left-handed pitcher that was basically pitching like a guy that was 15 years in the future. I mean, right. he was just, ahead of his he time. Wasn't, yeah, he's so far ahead of his time for what he was doing. Uh, I mean, just the knock on it was just the limited amount. He walked away from the game after putting up a stellar season with the Braves where he couldn't make more money. I remember nah. that. I remember uh, that. And, and uh, you know, for me, it, it, what it, the case for Billy Wagner boils down to, and you're going to find that I say this and I use this argument a lot, standards. I'm sorry, yeah. but you can't tell me that Billy Wagner is not on the same tier, if not better, than Trevor Hoffman. Uh, the the count, you know, you talk about guys that rack up a lot of counting stats just by the virtue of being there. You know, um, and then you talk about guys like Bruce Souter and all of these historical, uh, you know, these Hall of Fame closers, per se. I'm using air quotes for those who can't see. Um, yep. You know, uh, for me, uh, take the saves out of it. 
Seriously, you could drop the saves, and Billy Wagner's still a Hall of Famer for me. You can't yeah. say, I can't say that about a lot of these other relievers that we talk about as easy Hall of Famers. Yeah. So, and, um, yeah. And I mean, a lot of people believe Trevor Hoffman's all, and I believe Trevor Hoffman's a Hall of Famer, right? But I, I, mean, wrestle, I wrestle with that, man. I wrestle with that. I mean, for me, I believe he's a Hall of Famer, and then I believe that if the biggest concern that you have about Billy Wagner versus Trevor Hoffman, if you're in the same boat as me and you believe Trevor Hoffman's a Hall of Famer, that the only thing that Billy Wagner needed to do to become Trevor Hoffman was to, to get more opportunity at a lower-than-replacement-level pitcher. I mean, I, I think Jeremy Frank put it the best. was like, if he came back and threw 160 games, right, an inning a game with an ERA of around 5.5 and, and never struck anybody out, he would still have a better ERA, a better uh, and a better K rate than Trevor Hoffman. I mean, what you're asking for is, okay, you just want numbers right you want just overall numbers well i mean Billy cases, Wagner, yeah like he case, could have came back and done nothing right and got those numbers does that make him a hall of famer of course cases that extreme cannot be ignored is what it boils down to uh with yep. billy wagner so to me and i i was totally on the same page with with you i think it's an easy vote um yeah. some some other more interesting cases that i wanted to talk about um, so there's two in particular, and one of them I want to talk about fairly quickly. The other one, uh, on you, your Billy Wagner is my Andrew Jones, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, the, uh, the biggest thing for me is, uh, Scott Rowland. Okay, Scott Rowland is a guy who, if you run down the list, just his Hall of Fame resume, okay, uh, yes, he's a World Series champion in 2006. Uh, 1997 Rookie of the Year, seven All-Star games, eight gold gloves. His, But then, you know, again, you start comparing him to some other guys in the same breadth, okay? Uh, his 70.2 baseball reference war is just a shade above Edgar Martinez and just a shade below Paul Molitor. His OPS, 2.002 less than George Brett. So, who's the all-time leader in doubles among third basemen? So, I I make the I make the argument that you know you look at guys in in similar situations. We talk about say Adrian Beltre, and I'm not comparing a, a Scott Rowland to Adrian Beltre per se, but to me, and I think you'll agree with me, uh, Adrian Beltre is most likely a first ballot Hall of Famer. I would yeah, say yeah, first, second I, ballot, I, right? I I can't. I can't imagine this group not putting him in. I mean, maybe not in the fashion that they're throwing Derek Jeter in there, but, I mean, he's pretty well loved, and he comes with the numbers. So Right, yeah. and that's what I'm saying. You're talking about, now, Beltre's war, you know, you're talking about 20 more war, so I get that point. Oh, but, yes, but he's also a static accumulator at the same time that he was great, too. Yes, that, great that's, combo. that's what I'm getting. Scott Rowland, to me, is probably the one of the more egregious uh, sort of guys hovering in the lower tier of the election ballot because it, it's just there's no there. I can't come up with a sensible reason why, why he's m m sort of languishing down towards the bottom of the ballot. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, what everybody's been saying is just that he's just, when I watched him, I never saw a Hall of Famer out there that, you know, he just doesn't pass the eye test, right? And when you go and you look at his numbers and you talk about his numbers and everything else, I mean, you could say, yeah, he won a rookie of the year, he won a silver slugger, eight gold gloves, right? I mean, he won one when he was 23, he won his last one when he was 35, 36 years old, somewhere right. in there, right? I mean, things have just been stretched out for him. And I think that's it is that he was consistent. He almost seemed to be consistently missing about 15 to 20 games a year at the same time, which, I mean, that's not really that big of a knock anymore, right? I mean, this isn't the 80s or right. the 1912 or anything like that, right? I mean, people can miss <laughs> games. It's a it's a different era, right? So when I look at Roland and I look at his page, right, um, one of the other things everybody always says, there's no black ink on his baseball reference page. And there isn't, right? He doesn't really have that. Uh, but what Scott Roland does have is uh he's got like seven seasons where he hit 20 plus dingers and his OPS plus was between 120 and 129 and I would take that guy all day on my team right right but but does it ever put you in an MVP conversation no I mean a guy that's hitting 25 dingers and putting up a 126 OPS plus isn't a guy that's in a Hall of Fame talk or in a, I mean in a in an MVP talk especially right. when you're running through steroid era right I mean he is got, everyone's number five hitter if you're assembling a dream lineup Scott Rowland is your number five hitter he's not going to do anything so exceptionally well but he's going to do everything at a more than competent level. I mean, he was competing against guys like Barry Bonds. Uh, Adrian Beltre was in the National League back right. then, right? Albert Pujols was posting ridiculous numbers. Uh, Jim Edmonds was in there. Uh, it was just an amazing time for baseball. And so even like Scott Rowland's greatest year was like 04. I mean, it just gets eaten up by the steroid guys and, and, the, and the circus numbers that were being put up. So right. when you really look at, like, that kills his OPS plus, right? Because we're comparing him to the rest of the league well exactly. that's not really that's not really fair for a guy that you know i mean it's hard to differentiate who was clean and who wasn't right you and i don't know really i mean to be honest we can only take the word of the people closest to the people and uh and i believe him i believe roland's clean and just looking at his numbers i believe he's clean it just seems like that's a consistent guy that was playing at a high level yeah and and did what he was supposed to do right. he's just not getting he's, he's not getting, getting any recognition He's but. the he's the he's the off-brand Cheerios. They're just as good. Just nobody's they're not buying them because they're Cheerios. You're buying them yeah. because you're you're poor, and that's okay because yeah. I I've done that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> like uh, Dan, Dan Zimbrowski put it pretty good uh, with Fangraphs there. Uh, he mentioned his O war, right? Just his offensive war alone for Scott Rowland ranks him 13th among all third basemen. Right. That's before you factor in that gold glove. That I mean, that right. real gold glove. We're not talking a Derek Jeter style gold glove. Right. We're talking a gold glove at the hot corner, and and then you put that together, and he's the tenth but third baseman of all time. Yeah, I mean, exactly. He's finally getting some votes, but it's way way too late. Yeah, he's not a guy that should be made to wait. Um, yeah, I really hope that the IBWAA gets him in to show the BBWAA that hey, you know. <laughs> we thought he was definitely a 75% guy and not the 38, 40% guy he's turning out to be in your, in your quote. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so a, a guy that's, that's sort of following the same vein, um, but is a little more controversial and I kind of understand why. Um, so Andrew Jones, 
it's the tale of two careers. And, and let me just lay, it, lay out the, the two careers for you here. From 1996 to 2007, Andrew Jones, uh, 1,761 games, a 113 OPS plus, fine, okay, 368 home runs, that's, that's really good, uh, five all-star games, okay, that's also really good. Now, go from 2008 to the end of his career, that's 435 games, you've got a 95 OPS plus player, uh, 66 home runs, and arguably the worst contract in Dodgers history. Um, now, one thing I didn't talk about in all of that is the defensive numbers. Because this is this is what makes the case controversial. Because you go from a very good player to a, a very bad player. But uh, this is what separates it, okay? In total zone runs, which uh, it basically takes in the long for the short form explanation of what total zone runs means is that your zone is in this case center field. And based on the percentage of baseballs that are hit to that, how many more outs do you make above everyone else? Um, do any idea where Andrew's, and you may already know this, but just humor me, any idea where Andrew Jones ranks in total zone runs? And by the way, this is at any position? I would believe that he's got to rank somewhere towards the exact top. He is just one short of the exact top. He is second overall in total zone runs. Um, any idea who he trails? Seems like something Yachty or Molina would do. <laughs> Close. Brooks Robinson. Oh, okay. okay. So, and by the way, he's first, that would make him first among center fielders. Uh, he's got over two, his rating is over 230, 30, 230 and some change. Um, the next closest is uh, the Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays, at 176. So a decisively great player. He's 22nd all-time in defensive wins above replacement, and a lot of that is kind of sapped towards the end of his career when, you know, by the defensive runs saved and all of that, doesn't even start till 2006, and this is towards the end of his prime. So I pose the question to you, and I'm again, I'm a guy of standards. You're talking about a guy who, are, is he that much worse of a player than Brooks Robinson? Is he that much worse of a player than Ozzie Smith if from a complete player package that we are ready to... I'm not saying he's a first balloter by any means, but am I, are, is he also deserving of the fighting for his Hall of Fame life? Are we, are we doing wrong by Andrew Jones here? Because I, I you know how I feel. It, it, it really is uh, what you... I mean, it's way... It's how, do you, how do you punish him for what happened at the end of his career? Because, I mean, 30-year-old Andrew Jones and less was, I mean, ridiculous, right? I mean, anybody that watched that was like, you got to be kidding me. We're watching, I mean, it's Ken Griffey Jr.'s you know, twin brother. I mean, this, the... And he made it, it effortless. Yeah, it was just beautiful to watch, right? I mean, nobody, I mean, nobody closed the gap on a ball quicker than him. He, nobody took a better route. Nobody, I mean, when you saw Andrew Jones dive, right, when you were a kid, right, and you're watching the games, you're like, 
you see Andrew Jones dive, and it wasn't one of those fake ones, right? Where it's like uh, his knees land first, he kind of slides for a little bit, and then eventually he catches it, right? No, it's always all out, and uh, and it looked like he was on a full sprint to get to it every time. At least when I watch the replays, I still feel that way. I mean, that Andrew Jones is ridiculous. The problem with that Andrew Jones is that he stopped at thirty, and and that was it. Everything after that, like you said, is five years of of not so much uh four different ball clubs at that point um he lost you know defensive war went down right during that that stretch right so i mean it just it, it kind of hurt and it left that bad taste in your mouth but you know for me if i take his overall and i put it all together I mean, to me, I'm, I mean, I'm a big hall guy, and that's, I would love to see him in. I think that the highlight videos alone uh, at Cooperstown would be worth it. So I, th- I think it's a question of looking, contextualizing the body of work and understanding yeah. that, it, again, it becomes about standards. Ozzie Smith is a, it plays a, uh, you know, I'm not saying Ozzie Smith and Andrew Jones are the same person, but I'm also saying that when you, the gap between their defensive numbers and the gap between their offensive numbers, and you can make the same argument for Brooks Robinson too, is that Andrew Jones, in even even after, even in spite of the lackadaisical nature of the second part of his career, he narrows that gap between historically great defensive player and a competent offensive player. Yeah. You can't always have these two things. And I feel like Andrew Jones is one of those one of these players that that closes that gap more than other players. Not in the sense where this guy is a hall is a first ballot Hall of Famer. But yeah. I think he deserves a better fate than he's getting. And I and I'll tell you, and I think a lot of this has to do with of all of those ball clubs, he did not leave a good taste in anyone's mouth. And this is a this to me is the most uh without using it in the most purest term, prejudicial votes, prejudicial examples of a player getting uh, the, you know, of of the writers just being prejudicial towards Andrew Jones because you're a Dodgers writer and you remember when Andrew Jones showed up to camp looking different, looking kind of bloated and uh, barely, barely even wanted to play by a lot of measures. Uh, And you're, if you're with the Rangers, you remember him being just a total letdown, the White Sox, the same thing. Um, I feel like he is getting, there's, he's got enough on there that he should be eventually in. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, I, think, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, I hope so. I mean, it would be great. I mean, a decade straight of you know twenty five plus home runs while playing. I mean, top notch defense. I mean, for right. all time, not just for his time. I mean, something his advantage would have been if Sports Info Solutions was around back in his day to be able to go oh. through all the plays and compare them, right? To give right. him a more accurate number. I mean, thanks to them, we have a better Gold Glove system than we've ever had, right? I mean, if that exact system existed back then, and we could quantify this a little bit better. It wouldn't be a little easier to make his case, right? But the right. defensive stats are eh, from that era and whatnot, and comparing them into past, past, and Willie Mays and stuff like that. I mean, now you're, I mean, you're arguing with people about eye tests and everything else at that point, and you're talking about a guy that watched games that's now currently 75 years old, talking to a guy that's 50 years old, talking to a guy that's 30 because he's looking at the numbers, right? Right. And, and they're so far apart, and that's the problem with Andrew Jones's case is that defense is his biggest case. And it's really just not 
set in stone hard enough, right, for for what he did. I believe that the numbers that have been given to him, as great as they are, might really not even tell you how good he was. Right. And he, I, he seems like a guy that's just ticketed for the Veterans Committee, you know. And, yep. uh, and and that's, you know what, if that's what it takes, I understand it. I'm not so blind to it that he needs to be a first balloter or even a 15th balloter. But, you know, if Harold yeah, Baines if Harold Baines can get in, y'all can get Andrew Jones in. Exactly, exactly. I mean, nobody was, I mean, there was hardly anybody as consistent as him during that time. 150 games played every season for like 11 straight years. Uh, one of what? five center fielders to ever play 150 games in center field and hit 50 bombs in the same year. Hack Wilson, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, Ken Griffey Jr., Andrew Jones, right? right? I mean, just some of the accomplishments that he had in that hot stretch. I mean, if you if you believe in, you know, the the War 7, the Jaws factor and everything else, I mean, he's pretty well an easy Hall of Famer. But, yeah, sure wish we could have gotten about six or seven more great years out of him to make it more Two, impossible to look over two more good years if he had if he had played one or two good seasons braves like seasons for the dodgers yeah. he he's not a five to ten percent he's not pulling yeah. at five to ten percent he's pulling at 40 to 50 percent yeah uh, the problem is that just because nobody heard i mean very nobody but hardly anybody ever ends on a high note right no I mean, that's all that's also most, true very most few could have a decline on their way out but right. people talk about a, people talk about his, falling off the cliff uh he uh he burst into flames on the way <laughs> down the cliff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, one thing that I would really would like to point out, too, is, I mean, the Larry Walker case, the Rockies get behind him. Edgar Martinez, the Mariners got behind him. Andrew Jones racked up over 60 war in a Braves uniform. And now we haven't heard a peep. And right. I mean, to me, that's, that's got to be better the only two guys i've heard say anything and i as a braves fan i am on board with what you're saying uh because the only guys i've heard say anything i think it was i think it was maddox it was maddox or it was one of the big three uh, i forget what it was it, it maddox smoltz and glavin one of the three and then chipper jones are the only two i've ever heard make it pipe up like where is bobby cox where is the other two the one i forget which one said it so where are the other two you know yeah. if it was maddox where's glavin and smoltz if it's um the other way around you know it sounds like something maddox would say but yeah. um overall i just i feel like i agree with you i don't think there's anyone that's ready to make a case. I don't think there's anybody who's really to proverbially step out in front of the bus for Andrew Jones on this. And and in some ways, if you're a Dodgers fan, if you're a Rangers fan, I get that. But I'm also, I'm with you. Where are, where are the Braves? Where's the Braves alumni here? The, this glory days, where are these guys? So yeah, the, only, the only guy I see fighting it seems to be uh, the Twitter account that's at Jones HOF. Yeah, that, that person's really working their tail off to get the news out. But yeah, I, I'll put myself in that camp, but I, I think I'm more more uh, defeatist about it. So I can understand. Yeah. Um, so another guy, another outfielder that I think doesn't f- quite fall into the extremes of say the Andrew Jones case, but I think makes a has an interesting case. He's a new arrival on the ballot, and that's Bobby Abreu. Um, Abreu, you know, just to run it down really quickly, sixty wins above replacement. That puts him right about the same as Vlad Guerrero and Gary Sheffield. 
this yep. um, he's a, he, overall through his career he's a liability in the field. I I, I understand that, but he wasn't uh, terrible. He wasn't awful. Mean, he wasn't awful. Yeah. But you know he's not a guy. If you're running out a, a team, you're not uh, you're not thrilled. But you're okay with yeah. putting him in the field. Uh, solid hitter at 128 OPS plus. So you're talking about a solid hitter. He seems to tick all of the boxes without being a sexy pick. Um, although I will say I found it kind of interesting sorting through the Jaws, you know, right field leaderboard and things like that. Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting, he uh, accumulated 288 home runs and 400 stolen bases. Did not realize he was he was so much of a speedster. And what what I found interesting among the um, qualifying right fielders. Only Bobby Bonds had anywhere near, had more ho- of the power speed combo, home runs and stolen bases. Uh, 332, he had uh, 332 home runs and 461 stolen bases. So, you, you know, you do wonder, like, how, how do you see his future on the ballot? I mean, stolen base wise, I mean, he was really a. Like- mildly successful to me i mean yeah it's 400 and he's 400 right on the button right but i mean he really stolen pace percentage wise 75 percent so ranks him 167th all time right so i mean more of a counting stat type of thing you think yeah right i mean he only i mean i wouldn't say he stumbled into 400 stolen bases it's just that they sent him 500 and 20 sometimes to to get him there is the issue that i have right sure. just like you know eventually you're going to get 400 if you try often enough right so but that's valid it, that's valid it, it's the same case though for somebody like omar Vizquel, right i mean we'll you're get gonna to get him the, you're going to get those numbers eventually if you just keep trying over and over again so right. but uh for me a brave falls in the rolling boat right i mean without the defense as as we talked about earlier um but super consistent, right? I mean, the guy's out there on the field all the time. Uh, during the 2000s alone, second most games played. Miguel Tejada had more games than him by just a few. Uh, first in plate appearances, second in doubles, second in walks, second in times on base. I mean, Helton had more doubles and times on base. The one guy that had more walks than him, Barry Bonds, right? I mean, uh it's pretty crazy. And yeah, sixth in stolen bases during the 2000s also. I mean, he was up there with Juan Pierre, Carl Cropper, Ichiro, Jimmy Rollins, and Jose Reyes. Yeah. It, it, it was just such a, a – he was always there. He was reliable. He was in your lineup all the time and and posted good numbers to get to that point. I mean, right. like you said, a 128 career OPS – but during the 2000s, I think it was probably a little bit higher than that. 133, I believe. Right. So, I mean, definitely you're, you're number five guy in your lineup, right? It, yeah, that's a good point. And, 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 he, and he's looked upon very affectionately by a lot of uh, the baseball alumni, shall we say. Uh, you know, like I, having grown up in the Philly area, um, anyone that played there as long, played for the Phillies as long as he did, and is still looked upon affectionately. I mean, you can still go to a Phillies game and find an Abreu jersey yeah. somewhere. Uh, so that alone, I think, speaks to the likability. I, I would expect that he's one of those guys that is going to get voted in, maybe on his maybe third or fourth ballot, right? And it'll yeah. be like he'll be a. I hate to put it this way, but he'll kind of end up being like a filler, like a, I hate to like a Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell type, where it's like they're not like universally like, oh, this guy is 
obviously a Hall of Famer, but he'll end up in there, and you'll be like, everybody will be fine with it. Yeah, we can nope. hope that, but I mean, I just, I, I honestly don't know if that's going to be the case. I don't think he, uh, right now, he's he's borderline projection to get out of the first year. I, I don't think they're going to Kenny Lofton him. I think, I, I honestly feel like he will, he will, he will pick up some steam and end up on a year like, let's say, 2020, 2021, 2022. I think it's, I think it's 2022 or 2023. I could see him like, trending closer to something like a Larry Walker, you know, like, yeah. like gaining some steam and, and getting in there uh, for lack of having more attractive candidates. He's just so underrated for what he brought to the table. And, uh, and I, I hope that they can keep him around long enough to, to be able to get his case out there. I mean, the votes are in now for the BBWA and IBWA. Right. It's done, right? Whatever they come back to be is what they are, right? I'm hoping that we get a little more time because just some of the stuff that he's done, I, I mean, for me, it'd be the numbers guy, right? It's uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, let me go off for a little bit. Phillies, highest OPS for anybody that's played 1,000 games in a Phillies uniform. Chuck Klein, 935. Bobby Abreu, 928. El Delahanty, Ed Delahanty, 923. Michael Jack Schmidt, 908. Dick Allen, 902. 897. Sam Thompson. Four of those guys are Hall of Famers. One's Bobby Abreu. And a lot of people think Dick Allen's a Hall of Famer. That's a pretty good set of, uh, of Phillies. Played 1,000 games, ranked by OPS. Bobby Abreu versus your boy Greg Maddox. 64 plate appearances in his career. Batted 410, 422, 623 against 410 batting average. You know how many people got to bat 400 and hit eight extra base hits off of Greg Maddox? That was Tony Gwynn. Two, yes. Tony Gwynn, who just somehow magically owned that plate around anybody, basically, but Greg Maddox as well. Um, And then, yeah, Bobby Abreu is the other guy on that list, right? Um, We have... 13 players that can reach the same amount of walks and extra base hits. 11 of them are in Cooperstown. The two that aren't, Barry Bonds, Pete Rose. Right? Jeez. I mean, there's, there's probably a reason for those two guys being out, right? Um, and probably one more here, right? 400 stolen bases, if we even look at that, right? And a 380 on base percentage since 1900. Barry Bonds, Ty Cobb, Tris Speaker, Eddie Collins, Ricky Henderson, Honus Wagner, Joe Morgan, that Tim Raines guy, and Bobby Abreu. Just a slew of of Hall of Famers everywhere you try to look at his numbers, right? He just seems to fit in with it because, in a way, he was kind of a counting stat guy. But the reason why he was a counting stat guy is because he didn't miss his games, right? I right. mean, he's, he didn't have to play 24 years to get these numbers. He played 18 seasons to get 2,425 games under his Something belt. to be said for that, man. There's something to be said for that in a game built on, I mean, it built on an injuries, you know, in, in yeah. some ways. Um, so it's I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it, consistency is a thing. Now it's, it's uh, again, time to quickly make the case for the guy that I think you and I, We've never met him. I'm sure he's a really nice guy, but we but we can't stand him because he is constantly in these conversations. You, we talk about guys that deserve to be in the conversation that aren't. Now we're looking at the inverse, and that is Omar Vizquel. Yeah. And here's and I'll and I'll just like uh, with uh, I'll lay it out. If you're gonna sell out for defense, you better be historically great because a guy with a career 688 OPS has a lot of work to do. 
So, you know, he's really good at some metrics. I'm not dismissing him. You know, 29 and a half career defensive war per baseball reference. That's ninth all time. He has 11 gold gloves. His, But then you start to dig a little bit deeper, and it's like, well, hold up a second. He's ranked 31st all time in total zone runs, which you'd think, oh, okay, this is like a, this is an elite defender. Hold up a second, because Andrew Jones is down there just squandering at 5%. He's second all time, as we already alluded to. Scott Rowland, who, again, we're begging for traction, is 24th. So, uh, please, like, why, why do we keep, is this one of those eye test guys? Is, is this what this is? Is this one of those? Is this just an encapsulation of the antiquated nature of the BBWAA? I guess. I mean, I don't know how else you you get there, right? Because the numbers don't get you there. No. And don't get me wrong, big hall guy I am. I would put Omar Vizquel in the Hall of Fame. I'm just not going to put him in ahead of a dozen other guys on the ballot right now. It's just not. I mean, is he a part of the history that's worth kind of celebrating? Yeah, I think that he's important. I mean, longevity, like we said earlier, is a value, right? I give him that. But to give him, say, longevity plus being a three four tool player like some people are talking about eh right we, we, we didn't I, I mean he may have passed that eye test for some people but not for everybody and not to the extent that he's been getting votes right i mean you know like you mentioned was 688 for an ops right i yeah. mean out of the 69 players that hit 2700 hits in their career that 688 OPS ranks 69th out of 69, right? His slugging ranks 69th out of 69 at 352. His batting average of 272 ranks 68th out of those 69 guys. And his on-base like, percentage was only 64th out of those guys. Yeah, so I think it wasn't he's like, like he was a magician. He's like 19th all-time in singles or something like that. I mean, right? he, here's what it boils down to for me. You're more generous than me because he's not in my Hall of Fame. I, I just, I honestly, I think it's possible to acknowledge, hey, you were a great player. But think about what, think about that thread we're going to unravel here. If Omar Vizquel is going to get in, then, then we are doing a great, it just sets the, it's the Jack Morris theory. I call it the Jack Morris theory. Because if you're going to say that Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer, then we need to reevaluate what the standards are. Omar Vizquel is the same thing. I it's it's possible to appreciate a career from the outside. That does not mean we have to. We're under we're not under an obligation, you know, to to say, oh yeah, well, you know, he was great at defense, so we should get in. That's that's a flawed argument, and yeah. you, you know, the eye test it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I mean, he was ranked ninth on the shortstop list for shortstops that aren't even in the Hall of Fame based on baseball reference right. war. I mean, Bill Dolan should already be in. Derek Jeter's about ready to go in. Jack Glasscock didn't get in. But people like Burt Campanaris, Jim Fregosi, Miguel Tejada, Art Fletcher, and Jimmy Rollins all have more war than Omar Vizquel. So, I mean, as much as I'd still stick him in my Hall of Fame eventually, but, I mean, that would have to be a pretty bare ballot to get me to the point that he gets in there. He's He's got, I mean, there's so many other deserving people or even people that we might not even feel deserving, right? We, I don't think Art Fletcher in either of our eyes belongs in the Hall of Fame. No. He never imprinted anybody like that. So why would you put Omar in If there? the world was fair, Andrew Jones and Omar Vizquel would be flipped. 
in their polling percentages right now, in my opinion. I mean, Omar Vizquel is, and, and by the way, we're still talking about Omar Vizquel. When, um, if I'm not mistaken, we uh, 2013, we dropped Kenny Lofton, who has, in, 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 I don't even have the numbers in front of me, but I'm willing to bet has a significantly higher uh, a wins above replacement in any fashion that you choose. Yeah, defensively, I, offensively. Yeah, oh, yeah, just just well ahead of go ahead, fine. Yeah. But but the big thing is Omar Vizquel, and I think I, I hope that it, it, well, I don't hope, but I under, I feel like I'm echoing your sentiment here. I'm tired of talking about Omar Vizquel and how he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame when he objectively doesn't. No, I mean, even like I was talking with stolen bases with him earlier, right? Uh, out of the 37 guys that have stole 400 stolen bases like Omar Vizquel has done, I mean, he ranks 36th in stolen base percentage, right? I mean, 70.75%. Even a Bobby Abreu was a better base stealer. Heck, a Tony Gwynn was a better right. base stealer. He's a right? liability on the base paths more so. Anyone who's read Keith Law's book knows that he is a bigger liability on the base path than he is an asset. Yep. And your defense better be dang good to back it up. And it just doesn't show that that was really the case. So, I mean, you say that he should be flipped with Andrew Jones. I think he should be more flipped with, say, uh, Bobby Abreu, right? Right. I, mean, I, don't, I think that that's crazy that Bobby Abreu's on the verge of being dropped off that ballot. And meanwhile, Omar Vizquel is safely, I mean, two-thirds of the way to his 75%. Totally fair. I think I think this will be one. Uh, I this will be a tough one for me to swallow, and yeah. and I feel just as passionately about the hall as you do. And in, in a lot of ways, I, I this would be a tough induction for me to swallow because it yeah. is just. Look at this play. He did this thing well. Oh well, I guess that means he's good. Yep, I'm, exactly. I, I, I'm yeah. over that and. and it's a new era, and uh, anyway, I'm going to go on yeah, about it. But yeah, he won. He won gold gloves in a in an era that Derek Jeter was winning gold gloves, and even before that, right? I mean, it's just it. It wasn't. Yeah, it isn't. It, his case isn't as strong as uh, it's made out to be. And but everything that so far happened for him for his first two years in the Hall of Fame voting shows that he's probably I don't know, 95 out of 100 times he's going to get elected by that tenth year. So. Right. So, all right, we're going we're gonna to end this on a positive note. We're going to end this on a positive note. All right, your favorite Derek Jeter memory. This wasn't in, this wasn't in the notes. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, my favorite Derek Jeter memory, I, I mean, I went to his last game that he played in, in Seattle, right? Um, and so uh, that was pretty neat, right? I think uh, if I remember correctly, they gave him a chair from the old kingdom, um, nice. from where his first uh, home run landed, I believe. Uh, so they gave him a chair, and then, uh, but I don't think it was the exact chair where his ball landed. I think it was just a chair that was a number two, right? Uh, oh, in yeah. Row okay. That they gave him. And then uh, Robinson Cano gave him a nice watch that basically had uh, something written on it to the effect of, I learned how to be a, um, a leader from you, right? So uh, I think being able to be at that, and, and he had a great series. He had a pretty good last year. I mean, it's just, you know, you get the you get the feels from it because of just the, his postseason career and me just kind of seeing him, you know, him growing up as I was growing up. I mean, he's basically the same age as me. So he's living out my dream playing shortstop for the Yankees. So, True. yeah. How about you? Uh, the flip. 
Yeah. The flip. And it's not and it's not even a close second. I mean, sure, yeah, last game, last hit, yada yada. The flip, if anyone wants to argue with me about why Derek Jeter, like any any nerd, and I say nerd because I'm a nerd, but and mean nerd in the negative context, because you're just f- being contrarian, finding ways that Derek Jeter shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Exactly. I will say this. My wife is the one who uh, actually turned me on Derek Jeter, because I was one of those. And I said, yeah. oh, defensive metrics. And she was just like, "He's the he is the Yankees. And I just thought to myself, no, that can't be, you know, oh, whatever, whatever. And then I saw, okay, the flip. To this day, the flip is one of my top three all-time greatest baseball plays ever. Mm-hmm. And just and if anyone wants to know why Derek Jeter should be in the Hall of Fame, just watch the, just watch that play. Just watch how far he had to run. Watch how he had to judge the ball. Watch how he had to assess the situation and the gravity of the situation at the time. And that's why Derek Jeter's a, hall, a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, would and, he have gotten there easier if he was some other shortstop that was faster, covered more ground, and did everything else? Sure. Yeah, but show me that guy that actually had that hustle, that ability to be in that spot. Nobody else would have been there. And Nobody the IQ. Else would have been making that play. And you know what? Hey, Jim. Last I checked, baseball's entertainment, right? So you know what? It, it's great that Francisco Lindor, Andrelton Simmons can make make the jump throw plays look effortless. But you know what? Show me a little effort once in a while. I want to yeah, see. Please. I want to see a guy. I want to see a Joe, a guy that walks down the street and says, "You know what? I bet you that guy can't do it," and he does it. Yep. Yep. I want to see guys backing up cutoff guys that shouldn't have needed a backup. You know, because but they knew their right fielder was about ready to overthrow their cutoff guy. Right. I want that guy that's going to just make a play when he shouldn't. He should be completely out of it. But instead of just standing off to the side, decides to still be part of the play and and might actually do something that helps. Right. Right. The 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 flip ends up being a great play in the regular season, but it wasn't even a regular season game. Yeah. It was a huge play in the playoffs against the A's. That's Derek so. Jeter. It, he is a, it, it's a great play in the regular season. It's a Derek Jeter play in the postseason. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that is, uh, that is going to do it for us here at the, at romantic about baseball where that's a wrap on episode 13 for us. Uh, thank you very much everybody for listening. Uh, I am uh, at Adam C. Mack. Uh, the blog is at RMNTC Baseball. Jim, where are you at? I am at Passing Jim. And I'd also like to say thank you to at Dianagram again. DB, thank you so much for coming in and uh, and, and sharing uh, uh, your uh, side of the, the story, right? Right. It was, it was great. It's so. always great to hear insight from, from that angle of the game, and that's what makes this the greatest game ever. Yeah, so. DB, uh, DB knows, uh, knows their stuff. It's, it's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, great, great mind. Yeah, absolutely. So we will be back. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, Gabrielle from uh, Girl at the Game, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. Happy New Year.